You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and a warm welcome to Middle East Analysis. It has to be said, first of all, that I'm absolutely delighted to be sitting opposite Dr. Harry Hagopian, a friend, a scholar, an expert in the Middle East North Africa region, uh, an international lawyer, lest that be forgotten. Uh, Harry, it's, it's a delight to be with you after so many months of, of not hearing your tones on this region. Same uh, here, James. I am very happy to be here with you in your studio doing what we do best, which is basically a conversation where you sometimes try to tease me with your questions. And the only difference I see between now and the last time we were together is that your beard is slightly whiter. Slightly whiter and slightly longer. (laughs) And slightly longer too. You haven't asked me about my religious persuasions. (laughs) They they may have changed, who knows. Which would put an entirely different complexion onto this podcast, wouldn't it? It certainly would. Well, now, Middle East analysis, and we extend that to North Africa, there's so much to talk about. Now, obviously, I know what we're going to talk about today, but not a lot has changed with regard to Qatar, which I know you know an awful lot about, and the diplomatic crisis and the severed relations. Iran nuclear deal in the US, Israel-Palestine, which we talk about on on a great many occasions. The blockade of Yemen is an utter tragedy, as far as I can see. And then you've got Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, the US, and then some other European players, including the UK, it would have to be said, that appear to be the sort of overlords of many of these regional wranglings. And don't forget, James, in all those countries that you mentioned from the Middle East, North Africa, Libya is an important player as well. And it's an important player because principally it's got lots of oil. And besides the fact that it's a beautiful country, people might not imagine that when they hear what's happening across the country today, but it's got oil and that always is a magnet both for financial investment and interest, but also for trouble. Trouble and and, uh, international interest in in proceedings economically. Now, we have to talk and should talk about Jamal Khashoggi. Now, I'm impressed by the way you actually uh, pronounce the name James. Uh, Good on you, because I have heard so many different variations of this poor man's a name by Western media, whether French, German or English, that you came as close as one would expect a Brit, well, of Syria, of Cypriot descent, to say it. And you did uh, quite well. It's probably your Cypriot genes which help you pronounce the name better. Now, you nearly said Syrian descent. Is that the beard? <laughs> That's the beard. <laughs> Point taken. Yes, we we don't have a pronunciation department in this particular Middle East analysis. Well, I don't think uh, I don't think we qualify uh, with the BBC, or we can measure up to the BBC. No, but although you, mind you, their pronunciation is going downhill as well. Quite. Let's look at it this way. You said this poor man, and the reason we say that is, and I suppose this is where we liberally use the word alleged in inverted commas. But he entered the Saudi embassy in Istanbul on the second of October. Since then, we haven't seen hide nor hair of him. We've heard all sorts about the brutal end that he has probably suffered. 15-man kill squads flying into Turkey, so forth, so on and into so forth. Into private uh, planes. It's. I mean, it really def- 
you know, it's like looking at a Hollywood movie. The whole thing is just... No, a Hollywood movie would be more realistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the frightening thing, isn't it? Now, I want to start with this, Harry, because obviously we'll talk about Saudi Arabia. We'll talk about the crown prince and the reforms and what this means regionally and internationally. But it's not new, is it, that an outspoken critic of a certain state would go missing, not to be seen again. So what is particularly significant about this disappearance? Well, what is significant, James, about the disappearance of uh, Jamal Khashoggi? And you call it disappearance, you call it alleged. I don't really give two hoots about all that. I'll say the murder of. The murder of Jamal Khashoggi is very important for a whole variety of reasons. First of all, people have said he was killed. And okay, let me let me be very sort of uh, gracious and say the alleged murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi uh, was because he was such a radical, he was against the Saudi regime, etc., etc. Well, he wasn't. He's not a dissident. He never was a dissident in the real sense of the word. He was somebody who loved his kingdom, his country, but he was somebody who desperately wanted to see an openness in that country with freedom of expression in the kingdom, but also across the Arab world, uh, strengthened and protected. Post his murder and post his disappearance, if you will, the Washington Post, where he used to write his opinion pieces, posted his last article. It was quite moving to read him when everybody knows that for all intents and purposes, the man is dead, in which he basically said what the Arab world lacks most is freedom of expression. And that is quite true. The Arab world lacks a lot of things. It has a deficit on a lot of things, including freedom of expression, including empowerment of its own uh, citizens, etc. But freedom of expression is one of them. So the fact that this was a man who was not a radical dissident in the uh, stereotypical uh, definition of the word was one example. The other was the fact that he was very well known and he had a whole string of uh, connections across the world. The fact that this actually happened, this murder, this abduction, this killing, this disappearance happened in a Saudi consulate in a foreign land, in this case, uh, Turkey, put all these together and it makes this almost a surreal thing. But what was even more surreal is that even if there was a plan to abduct, to kill, to whatever other word I could use with this journalist, this man, it was done in such a botched up, incompetent way that one would wonder whether anybody really knew what they were doing or whether it's possible that everything just unraveled at the last minute and led to this disastrous, tragic consequence. Now, I don't know much about international espionage, but it would seem that the last place, if you wanted to remove someone who you considered dangerous to your your ends, and I suppose what I am doing here is making a link between potentially the state having an involvement and it being some A.N. other force involved in this, 
one of the arguments to the state not being involved, whatever you think about that, is why on earth would that happen in a Saudi embassy when, you know, in days gone by, I'm sure these things happened quite away from the glare of any sort of anywhere where you could be implicated in it. Not only that, but also, I mean, everybody knew that the Saudi uh, politicians and certainly the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, were not happy with this man. And he had come under a lot of pressure. I mean, just to give you an example, some people were even questioning whether he was really uh, a Saudi citizen or whether he was maybe Turkish. Maybe his complexion was a little bit too white, too pale uh, for being a Saudi. Uh, Some people were trying to analyze his name Khashoggi and trying to find roots there that lead to other countries rather than the Arab world. When somebody like this man who knows he's got so much opposition from his own uh, country's rulers as well as from some others, If he were to go into the Saudi embassy in Istanbul simply to get a piece of paper which says that his divorce decree had come through so he could remarry, surely somebody would have thought that he's not that stupid to go there. He would have known he was in danger. Yes, exactly. He would have organized something, his fiance outside the consulate, friends of his, people. And to go and uh, deal with this man, kill this man, in such a way that he goes into the consulate, doesn't come out, and then the Saudi story changes every two, three days. One minute it is, no, 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 he came here, stayed for 20 minutes, and he left. When that fell flat on its face, it was a question of, well, no, we don't know what's happened to him. Then it was with aided and abetted by the president of the United States. It's actually rogue elements who might have abducted or killed him, nothing to do with the political establishment in Saudi Arabia then, oh, you know what, he might have been dismembered, he might have been carried out uh, in a big, large bag onto those planes that came to Istanbul and then taken back to Saudi Arabia, or the remains would have been dumped somewhere in the wasteland, not far from the consulate general and the consul's uh, residence. Then the consul himself literally, uh, to use inverted commas, flees the country before he gets questioned by the Turkish authorities. All this, to me, reeks of incompetence as much as it reeks of an unbelievable reality, which is that we have become so arrogant in this world that we think we can just kill somebody and the world would move on and nobody would stop and and say anything. And to be honest with you, um, James, had it not been for the Washington Post and Al Jazeera together hammering the fact that this has happened initially before it sort of built up into a larger global interest, who knows, it might have just passed our uh, inspection. But global interest and global spotlight, there certainly is on this now. It and certainly is. The, the big question is, you know, to what extent is the state involved in this? And and, and to be honest, we now see pictures of the, the 15 men that, that supposedly were in that embassy to do whatever job they had to do or were sent to do. You know, we're seeing the crown prince and people circled in the background, aren't we? There's all the associations. Who is this person? Who is that person? Is he in any way involved or known to the crown prince? You and know so what, um, James, I also find this a very ridiculous attempt by 
the Saudi government and other governments, because the Saudis haven't yet given their version of what happened. They're working on it, but it hasn't come out yet. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was there. He met with the foreign minister, with the crown prince. He even met with the king, and then he went and met with President Erdogan in uh, Turkey at the airport before uh, the Turkish president went on a state visit to Moldova. Now, in all of this, what I also find rather stupid and it basically insults the intelligence of any person is that if rogue elements were involved, surely they would kill this man or there's a nice term liquidate this man outside the embassy. I mean, he was in a city where you could just go and do what Al Capone used to do and what a hitman used to do. They just kill you as you're walking and that will be the end of it. But to actually send rogue elements to go and kill him in the very diplomatic heart of the Saudi political establishment in Istanbul, to me, sounds really, I don't know whether it's surreal or stupid, I don't know. But why would rogue elements do that? Rogue elements cannot get into the consulate and do this without the knowledge of higher authorities. Somebody has got to tell the doorman, the consul, the security guards in the consulate, the CCTVs that suddenly recorded when he came in but suddenly stopped recording when he went out, supposedly, somebody will have to tell them, yes, let those people come in and do their job. And if they're rogue elements without these say-so or okay of the establishment, then uh, that will not happen, not happen in the embassy. Now, you can always turn around and say, well, yes, but maybe somebody less important than the crown prince or less important than some high political figure in Saudi Arabia might have arranged this and the crown prince, MBS as he's known, will not have done anything. Well, that might happen in a country where you have institutions and where you have different organizations doing different things. But when you have a country like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where everything and anything that happens from a smallest to the biggest incident has to get the okay of the one person who runs the country, the one person who's basically removed everybody who's against him or who might be in opposition to him, and that person being the crown prince. Surely you can't tell me that they did something as important and as dangerous and as spectacular as abducting, drugging, killing, perhaps even dismembering a person as Jamal Khashoggi, and that nobody in the higher echelons of the political establishment in Saudi Arabia knew about that. So for me, the issue is not was he murdered or not. I think he was. The issue is not whether the crown prince knew it or not. I think he did. The question is now, how do we whitewash this? How do we get some sort of a scenario? It's almost like a grisly version of EastEnders to try and justify that this happened, you know, without our knowledge or something went wrong and we weren't trying to kill him. Why? Because there is a serious attempt to try and exonerate 
the crown prince from all responsibility because of the trade relations and the financial relations between the kingdom and the United States and also the fact that if this man goes and another prince comes and takes his place until such time as the father dies, then the foreign policy orientations of the kingdom might not be as hand in glove with the Americans and with some Europeans as it is now. Well, I'm going to have to ask what this really means for both MBS, the Crown Prince, the supposed reforms, the sort of better face towards the West and all this acceptability, without even mentioning human rights records and so forth, because there's a lot of talk that it's still very much, and maybe that axis has tightened between police and state. What does this mean for the reforms? What does it mean for Saudi Arabia, both regionally and internationally? You know, it's very interesting what you said about tightening the noose or making the situation even tighter across the kingdom. It's not only across the kingdom, it's across many Arab countries. I think it's part of the reaction of the Arab rulers to the so-called Arab Spring that started in 2010-2011 because there is what I would call very simply, not to go into too many semantics, the counter-revolution. And the counter-revolution was led to a large extent by the Gulf countries as it was by Egypt and others. And basically what it says is that the Arab Uh, spring, the uprisings threatened the position, the influence, the vested interests of those Arab rulers, and now they've come down with a huge hammer trying to crush anybody who stands in their way and tightening the noose on every single institution or organization. I mean, people seem to forget that while we are romantically involved with Egypt, Egypt is an atrocious case at the moment in terms of the number of people who are imprisoned, who are in jail, whether they're journalists, whether they're NGO organizations. The situation across the Arab world is really, really sorrowful. And the kingdom is not any better than that. When people look at MBS, they think, oh, he's a young man. He speaks English quite well. He goes around joking. Uh, He's allowed women to drive uh, cars. I'd like to see how many of them are. That it is okay. He's a reformer. People do not realize that he might actually do some social reforms, but at the same time, politically, be even more conservative and more repressive than other previous rulers, crown princes, or even kings in the in the monarchy. Look at all the blunders he's done. The embargo upon Qatar, a childish, risible approach by Saudi Arabia, supported by the United Arab Emirates, by Bahrain, which is basically a protectorate of Saudi Arabia, and of all people by Egypt. Look at the mess, the absolute mess that has cost so many lives in Yemen. He's done it. Look at the number of people People in positions of authority and rich people from the kingdom, he princes, he actually collected them, put them all in the Carlton Ritz in Saudi Arabia until such time as everybody basically negotiated the amount of their ransom to come out of that gilded jail. Look at the fact that he actually called, as if he's the bellboy, the prime minister of Lebanon to come to Riyadh and then sort of forced him to go on TV and say he resigns uh, as prime minister of Lebanon because Hezbollah is against him. He then wanted to denationalize, privatize parts of uh, Aramco, and that 
fell through. And now the biggest botch of all on a human level is the abduction and possible murder. I'm trying to humor you by using alleged and possible of Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, everything he's done is ridiculous. I mean, if this is how the kingdom is going to be run, and this is the pandemonium that's going to be created in the backyard of what Europeans and Americans consider as their vital interests, strategic in the sense of Iran and the uh, Straits of Hormuz, or uh, geopolitical in terms of financial investments and what happens to all our monies and the amounts of uh, things they buy from us. If this is what's happening in our backyards, I think we should stand up, smell the coffee and say, hold on, is that coffee with or without cardamom? Very good point. I tell you what, though, the, the thing that worries me most about everything you've said there is that no matter what we might think and no matter those that might raise their voices, no matter, you know, the international community, whether it's a case of saying there will be punitive action, oh, but there's a huge arms deal in the background that we've got to protect, obviously. There doesn't seem to be a solution in the Middle East, North Africa anymore that is stopping people from just cutting dissenters off literally at the head. You're right at the moment. And uh, this is why it's a it's an Arab uh, autumn verging on the winter, actually, that we are witnessing at the moment. But what I would say is the following. I mean, if Europe and the United States maintained their democratic institutions in as best a way as they had done since the creation of the European Union and the end of the Second World War, then we would have said, well, at least we are maintaining our own values. However, if you look at what's happening in the US and you look at what's happening in Europe and all this populism that is coming out, Italy, Hungary, here, there and everywhere, it's a mess. And therefore, everybody is feeling fragile and everybody is trying to firewall and protect their own interests. So in that sense, you're absolutely right. But let us not forget that politicians are also susceptible to institutions and to popular public opinion. And institutions are what saves a democracy and popular uh, opinion is what forces politicians to change uh, tracks. We know this via Brexit here. We're going through the pangs of a rebirth and we don't know where that's going because of all that's happening on the ground in the UK. But also across Europe, it's the same thing as well as in the US. The number of organizations, the media, the NGOs, the church-related organizations, the popular opinion of people saying this is unacceptable, whether politicians in the West like it or not, they have to heed to this uh, call because if you look at the way even President Trump has changed his message in the last 16, 17 days following uh, the day when uh, Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, you will see that he's thinking, oh, there are midterm elections coming up in the United States in five weeks time. I'd better play it safe. So what I'm saying is that the question at the moment is how much of a momentum is this going to produce that will actually force people to say no, change is necessary? Or how much would the fight back be, the pushback be, that would keep things as they are and in the process make us forget? I tweeted one of my uh, rye uh, tweets in which I said, you know what, 
probably in a few days' time, in a few weeks' time, if the political establishments across the world can still maintain their uh, sense of we're going to fight this, uh, another crime, another scandal, another something will happen and people will forget uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And I think uh, there are many politicians, both in the Gulf and elsewhere, who are thinking that, you know what, if we weather the storm long enough, we would be able to get out of that. Will that happen or will that not happen? I don't know. How much uh, more uh, strength and breadth have NGOs and the press and the media got to keep this going and staying alive and forcing politicians to work on it? That also, I don't know. I guess that time uh, will tell us. And as you said earlier, prophecy at the moment is becoming a very, very expensive commodity in the MENA region. I think you're right. But you know what? We, we've been there before. And you and I have talked about this before because I, I believe you're right. I think the solution um, from from the authorities, from the state's perspective, is to ride out the storm. Yeah. I think they will look at that. It's been done before. Yeah. You only, to be fair, have to look at Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Exactly. From 2011. He looked completely... Exactly. Oustable. It was it was a case of when, yeah, wasn't absolutely. it? Not if. Exactly. And yet, I mean, that's probably the longest riding out of a storm I've ever yeah. heard of, really. But in micro, perhaps the death of Jamal Khashoggi might at least have registered and got everyone talking about the fact that perhaps this isn't the great reformer in the crown prince. You know, you're absolutely right. You made a good point there, James. I mean, whether MBS stays on as crown prince and, and then eventually king, and remember, he's so young that he would be king for about four or five decades unless something happens. So if we've got somebody like him who believes that repression is the only answer to security, then the only thing that could be said is that perhaps, at least for the foreseeable future, I don't know how long, how much of a long memory politicians have, but in the short term, at least, politicians and others would think and remember, you know what, this guy whom we call a reformer, a reformer, he's going to bring the country into the 21st century. Well, maybe the country is now on the outer verges of the 20th century, but at least we'd remember that all that glitters is not gold. Harry, I mean, that's a good way of ending, I must say, but let's be honest, we look at our own precious democracy over here, hard won, and at the same time, it's quite hard to know who the heck you're voting for over here. So we've got our own problems when it comes to, to leaders and transparency and backing up promises in manifestos and so forth. So, I mean, I guess it's the way of the world. But at the moment, it's the, the dollar, the pound that's winning. It's the dollar, the pound, the euro and the yen, whatever it is that is winning. But let me add on, a, on an upbeat note, James, both for you and me. Please do. Much as you're absolutely right in this last statement you said. But you know what? I'm happy to be living in Europe, warts and all, rather than having to put up with what is happening in the region, when, as one person was telling me, a quite a well-known academic who works in one of the universities, who's got ideas pretty much like mine, he said, you know what, Harry, every time they ask me on television to talk about what's happening across the MENA and Gulf regions, I'm so afraid to say something that might actually irritate somebody so much 
that the next day they come to the university, they will see the chair in my office, but no man sitting in it. That is the fear now that faces many, many people. Those abductions, those killings, those people in their thousands thrown in jails, the people who are thrown out of the country, the refugees in Lebanon and elsewhere whom Syria doesn't want to come back because they're not faithful enough to the regime. All these people, I mean, we are in a situation where it really gets a little bit dangerous. So all things being equal, I raise my hat for the courage and the determination of all those people, Arabs, Christians, as well as Muslims who are living in the MENA and Gulf regions. But you know what? Given all the problems I have in my personal life, I'm happy at least to be in some semblance of democracy in the West. Well put. And I guess a lot of those fears and, and talking about your, your, your friend as well, you know, Jamal Khashoggi literally embodies that. He probably didn't expect, you know. You know, he thought probably, I mean, I can't be, I can't put myself in the man's head, but he probably thought that all the things that he knew about the Saudi regime and the way it ran and the way it thought, because the man was so close to the corridors of power before, he probably thought, yes, they might do a lot of things, but they're not going to drug me, kill me, torture me, dismember me, throw me somewhere, and that would be the end of it. Surely they can't do that. The only word that comes to mind actually is grisly. Well, we will see whether the storm can be ridden out on this one, but it certainly opened up a massive conversation about the region, about the big players in the region and what the future might be. And I'm sure it will lead to further conversations for us, Harry. But for now, thank you for your your analysis. Fascinating. I always find it fascinating. Will you join us again in the coming months? I hope so. In four months' time, James, you probably remember to say, let's do another podcast. (laughs) I might have even had a shave. (laughs) Harry, thank you ever so much. Pleasure.